this is a tra- trauma reaction. This is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. You are not abnormal because that's the first thing we go through is why I should be able to handle this better. No, you hurting. You're grieving. Your community is gone. But yet you have to come back over here every day and get treated as if you do not belong. And have had clients say, people have told them, why are you here? Who gets to ask somebody that? Like I said, but that's your privilege, though. You don't have to make it your business. As a white person, you don't have to make it your business to even consider what happened to this community. Welcome to Priced Out the Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Morgan, alongside Cornelia Swart. How you doing today, man? I'm, I'm doing good, sir. How See, are I you? messed you up already. You did. You gotta, you're, I, you're getting inside my mind. Yeah, that's how <laughs> it works. <laughs> we got a good show for him today, man. Yes, we have uh, Michelle Lewis here, who is featured in the documentary Priced Out. And so we're going to talk to her about what has changed in her life and in the community over the last two years since the last time we spoke with her on camera for the film. Michelle is also um, a social worker. She works in mental health and she deals with folks all the time who have what's called root shock, which is the psychological impacts of gentrification. So we're gonna talk a little bit about her life and also about the psychological impacts of gentrification. Good, good, good. Well, hey, you just wanna go ahead and get it started then? Let's go. All right. All right. Hi, Michelle. Thanks so much for coming. We talk a lot. We, we talk about gentrification a lot. You've been on a lot of the discussions that we have after screenings are priced out. And I just want to say thank you for coming and talking about this issue once again, because I know it can be it can be difficult. And thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be a part of the film. So you are a social worker. I just want to like tell folks who didn't see the film and who don't know, don't know you, um, just sort of a little bit about what you do. So you're a social worker at OHSU, Oregon Health Science University. What do you do? Yeah, so I am a mental health therapist for Oregon, Oregon Health Science University. I work for Avell Gordley Center for Healing. That is the clinic. And um, I'm an Afrocentric practitioner. So primarily I work with individuals of African descent, um, African-American, Black, Asiatic, melanated, Um, however uh, you would like to culturally identify. Um, So primarily 99% of my caseload is dealing with the African-American community and they are specifically seeking out um, an African-American therapist to work with. That's good. You went to school specifically for that? No, um, not right away. I My professional background was working with individuals involved in the criminal justice and child welfare system, just seeing people behind bars. And um, I, you know, I did that for a few years and then came out into the community. And I worked for this organization for 10 years called Pathfinders of Oregon. And they um, do a lot of cognitive behavioral Uh, programming and a lot of the prison institutions and so we opened up a program called the Center for Family Success at that time and it was really to help people who were reintegrating back into the community from prison to have a program that they can come to to get some advocacy, parenting, get them connected to other community resources to help them get settled. What happened was a lot of people who looked like me were coming out and really needed mental health 
And I kind of felt at that time like I was a counselor because they felt really comfortable talking with me about some of the things that they experienced while they were in prison. But most often, anytime I would talk to them about going into counseling, there was a lot of pushback because there wasn't a lot of black therapists, male or female, in this community. And so when I was in grad school, um, I switched my last year in grad school over to mental health. And um, I think it was a spiritual calling for me to do that. And I interned at Abel Gortley Center for Healing. Did they have training that was specific to African-American? No, they did not. Um, I created this position? I didn't create the position there. Abel Gortley Center for Healing has been around um, for at least about 10 years or so, maybe a little more. Um, and so that clinic was already in the community. I just wasn't aware of it. That goes to show, you know, we still have black people in this community that have not heard of Abel Gortley Center for Healing. Mm-hmm. But, and, you're fr- and you're from the community. You grew up in the neighborhood. Can you yes. tell us a little bit about kind of your upbringing in North? North yeah, East? so I was, I was born and raised in Portland, Oregon. Um, so I lived um, on, uh, let's see, younger on 24th in Emerson. Um, I went to Vernon School then um and then as we had to end up going over to kennedy mcminimins where it's at now when that when vernon was had to be overhauled and everything but um so yeah i grew up on 24th and emerson 5268 northeast emerson um it was my parents first home that they owned and um wonderful neighborhood um, lots of community, lots of people that looked like me. Everybody knew each other. We had four perfect squares on the corner where everybody could play kickball. So I always remember that, riding bikes down the hill. Um, it was just a really great time, you know, so. And there was really, a place where you get spicy pickles? Is that yeah, spicy, spicy well, that came along, but there was Rexall's up the street um, where we would go get penny candy. So, you know, walk up there, um, to Rexall's, you got your ice cream. They had a wall full of candy. Like I say, penny candy, literally. Um, we would get bags of candy, um, licking sticks, and all kind of stuff. <laughs> you know? So really good memories. Really good memories. And so then, um, so you grew up in the neighborhood. Um, and you eventually, as we talk about in, in Priced Out, is you, you move out of the neighborhood to buy a house, right? And you, you go out to East Portland and you buy a house, but then you experience an, a foreclosure during the um, subprime lending crisis, the housing crisis. And you talk about that being a very painful experience and kind of one of the more dramatic moments in the film. Um, and how you had to, you know, pick up your family. Can you just tell us, like, really briefly, what what happened there? Um, yeah, um, it was our first. Um, it was our first home that me and my husband purchased, and we were really proud of it. I felt that we did all the right things. We had to provide our taxes, and we had to have a down payment, and um, we went through a lending company, not one of the, you know, well known. It wasn't through a bank, but. Uh, um, a company in Vancouver. I can't remember the name at the time, but either way, we bought our first home, signed all the paperwork, and we lived there about five years. I think what we weren't aware of is that we had an adjustable rate mortgage 
at the time and we were paying a reasonable um, mortgage payment. And then I just remember it didn't, it wasn't like overnight, but within a few years, we started seeing our payments increase. Not too much to make us uncomfortable, um, but then it got to a point um, where my payment went from, you know, 800 a month and, and then we got up to like 15, 1600 and then it, we just couldn't afford it based on I wasn't doing the kind of work that I'm doing now. I wasn't making the kind of money that I was making um, and my husband wasn't uh, making a lot of money either. So it was a lot for our family. And at some point we reached out to um, a lot of the programs that were there to support families to help them keep their home. So we had borrowed money and sent payments in trying to fight for our house. And this is when we had a Washington Mutual at the time. Oh, right. Washington Mutual disappeared overnight almost. Yes. And we sent lots of money to them that they had a program that says we can help you stay in your house. You fill out this paperwork. We did that, and then I would call all the time, like, what's going on? What are we doing? Never get return phone calls. And one day, I just I just remember looking out the window, and I seen some people taking pictures of our house. And I happened to ask the person what they were doing. And they're like, well, this house is, is going into foreclosure, because we had got behind. And, right. And um, that was when I was like, oh, my goodness. You didn't like, know that it was in foreclosure? Not right away, right. you know. They I did not. You did. They knew, you wow. know. And then later on, agents. yeah, we received. Yeah, it was an yeah, agent. Yeah, real estate agents knew before you did yeah. that your house was going to be foreclosed. And then we got some letters, wow. you know. And you know, at the end of the day, um, we were told, you know, hey, you owe this money. It was way more money than what I could come up with. So we lost our house. We had. <laughs> The agent showed up and she was with a check and she was like, I think it might have been maybe twelve hundred dollars. I remember I had just put in a furnace too, a brand new furnace. And she was like, Here's what we're gonna give you for um cleaning up the the house as and then we were out. I mean, there was no time really to kinda like let it sink in, but it was fair it felt like in, in overnight. Um when we lost the house but it was hard it was tough and it was hard on the kids it was hard on the kids I didn't tell anybody what we were dealing with so I kind of kept it was between me and my husband and then me and my children I was just like well we're gonna get a different place and we moved on division and that was a nightmare um, on 104th and division we called it Little Beirut <laughs> So let me go back just a step. Would you have done it a little bit differently now, you know, uh, from the emotional standpoint of letting other people in? Uh, was that even an option to let other people in and know? Um, I think, you know, what I know now, I wish I, yeah, I would let some people know. I would, you know, let people know that what we were going through. But I think as as a, as an as an African woman, I would say my geopolitical geopolitical location is America, but I consider myself an African woman. Right. So I want to state that. But I think um, I would have done that. But when we talk about home ownership with Black people and what that meant, 
yeah. that was that's a pride thing and so i kind of felt like we had let some people down and mm. also yeah. in my immediate family we were the first ones to own a home so it's just like going to college you know your right. first one there's pride there have you found yourself pulling anyone to the side and just saying you know and, and helping them through the process have you had that opportunity not nobody has came to me specifically I do you know have some friends who are buying a home and they have seen them right. and so they were really surprised so okay. you know I think people are still kind of like whoa really that happened with you guys and I'm like yeah that really happened so there's been times where I have been able to share some information with them mm-hmm. like yes make sure it's not an adjustable rate you know um, do your research on if you're going to go- not go through a bigger lender but you know they got all these little companies out here so um, like do your research on these individuals make sure that you check them out well. So that's some information I can give, but yeah. Um, so yeah. The last time we talked to you on camera was 2015. You were saying that you were even suspicious of buying a home and that you didn't even want to go back into that, that whole maze. Do you still feel that way? I do. I do. I, you know, and it's, you know, people say right now for what I pay in rent, and, and after, it's been funny, after some of the times I've spoke at some of the showings that, of the film, you know, I remember I had a woman come up to me privately and she's like, wow, you know, you do this work and um, I know you, you, you must make a decent salary, you know, how come you just don't buy a house, you know, and I'm like, I don't trust, I don't trust, the, and that's the part of trauma, yeah. so I don't trust banks, I, I just don't do it, and I'm not really interested, you know, I'm at this place now where, you know, I'm not old, but do I want to be spending the rest of my life paying on on a mortgage, especially here, right. where how a decent house is going to run you $350,000, I don't have that kind of money. I don't want to leave that to my grandchildren or my kids. So I'm just, I don't trust the system. Yeah. I, and I don't blame you for that for that feeling at all, you know, at all. So you moved back into Northeast Portland, just outside Albina, at the end of the film. Um, you moved back to a community that was closer to home, closer to where you were you were brought up. How has it been in this neighborhood? Um, it's been good. I mean, I you know I enjoy seeing people. You know, um, coming from Gresham because I lived in the outer, you know, off of two hundred and something Gresham at that time, and you can go days, and maybe one or two people might walk by. <laughs> but it's really great to be in a community, see people biking, people speak, which the, is the neighbors talk. To yes, each other people and... speak. Um, and my husband want, likes to know everybody. So <laughs> he has made, you know, he's connected with some of the neighbors, even some of the individuals who are houseless, you know, he's connected and gives them food and they come by and it's a wave. I mean, so I, I really do enjoy that. Um, I like the community. I'm glad to see people that, you know, and I do get to see people who look like me. So that's wonderful. It's a diverse community. It is, it is a very diverse community. And it doesn't, it, you know, that area hasn't changed as much. So that's another thing. And I'm, I'm always kind of like, when is it coming? You like know, like how, yeah, when, when is area? it going to come down this way? You know, so, and because I remember Cully. So um, it, that area hasn't changed too much right now. So, you know, that's always that, oh gosh, I know. But doesn't mean the rent. 
So it has the rent changing. been? Because you're renting a house. You're renting yes. a family house. So, yes, the rent has increased. We've been living there. Um, this will be our third year, and we've seen two rent increases. So, for a total, not too much, but um, a total of $150. Okay, or, so not bad. So, not bad. Yeah. Um, but uh, the house is nice. Neighborhood. My neighbors are great. And I really, really love being there. Do you still, I mean, are people you know in your community oh. still there? Not too many, not too many. Um, like I grew my, you know, I grew up on Eighth in Alberta, so that whole place has totally changed. And um, you know, it's always different. You know, and I have a lot of childhood memories over there. So to go over there and to see nothing that reminds me, like we never even existed in that community, um, has been it's, it's still a shock sometimes. And I notice the change. When I go there, I'm more alert. Um, my mood can change a little bit. Um, it's very different because people don't really speak. And I've experienced that quite a bit there. Um, there's not a lot of eye contact. Um, and I've walked in places. There's places where I've tried to go, you know, get some, you know, look at different things. And people don't, you know, kind of like watch it, you know, a little bit of profiling. Um, let so you like know when you, you go in the store. Yeah, like the little shops. Like more vigilant or follow yeah, you around the yeah. So I have experienced it. So I try not to make it my business to spend a lot of time over there um, because um, I don't often feel comfortable. And I think we used to go to Soleil's quite a bit, and that was always a hot spot for me because it's like we didn't. It's nothing sacred to me. It's kind of like you know, we don't us, get that. Tell us what that is. What, what happened. No space of our own. What was it? Was you it know, bar it was a bar. Soleil's was a bar. Um, that's no, and that's gone now. I, I drove wow. by there the other day, and it was closed. And I was like, okay, that's going to be another coffee shop. Give it, you know, right, or or some type of a beer pub oh, or yeah. something. So here it is. That's gone. The only like, the only place remaining that was created for a black folk to come and listen to some little r&b mm -hmm. you know listen to some live music that's gone and when we went when you would go there we really didn't have that it was always gosh you know story that didn't make it into the to the film was one that you told about Little Chapel of the Chimes and this is something that we heard from countless people during the reporting on the on the story and for folks who don't know Little Chapel of the Chimes was a funeral parlor it was on Killingsworth at around Albina um, right in the heart of the neighborhood and a lot of people buried their loved ones uh, there and it has been turned into a bar, into a like a franchise bar um, that kind of caters to a hippie aesthetic, and and that has been that has been the, one of the, the biggest sort of traumas for people um, that we talk to is simply seeing their that place that had so much meaning and power um, in their lives around something that was so sensitive um, turned into like this party. Um, and, but you had a particular experience there Yes, too. my friend threw a party there. She did not know. She's from the South, and she, she's she been here for years, but she did not know the history of that, uh, I think, of that pub. Uh, and so 
um, yeah, when I got there, I was just like, hey, you know, I'm not going to be able to stand here long because my grandfather had his service here. And I had other family members and friends, and I was like, this is too much. I mean, it's it's a sacred space. It's, it's so disrespectful. And plus, we got treated badly there. Right. On top of it. And so. What did they said? There was like. Some yeah, of the we brought some fresh. food. She hadn't gotten permission from the manager to bring food there. And so when she brought the food, there was the bartenders who had an issue. And we were, I was at the bar. The bartender didn't realize I was with the party. And she had made this comment like, I don't even know why they're in here anyway. You know, and it was like, and I and I commented back to her. I'm like, we have a right to be here anywhere we want to be. You don't even know what this place is. Did you, you know, and I ended up telling her what the spot was. So I'm like, for you to make that type of comment, you know, there's no excuse for that type of behavior. So, you know, that was the only time I've been there. I, that, and I've never been back because I won't go in that place. It's just too much and it's just... It's, 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 it's so disrespectful for what that was in our community. So. And, and there's no recognition in the building, no photographs. Because sometimes these buildings, the McMinimans, they have hundreds of these buildings, it seems like. They'll have old pictures, they'll have plaques telling you the history of what the building was before they turned it into something. And there's just no mention of like the deep significance. Yeah, this, no, this no, there's had. no historical information. There's no even no even pictures reflective of what that what used to the people who used to be in that community, so um, it's unfortunate. So how are people in the community processing that? Because for me, I hear the story and it and it brings up anger. You know, I can't even describe it as like righteous indignation or put a pretty bow on it. It's not frustration; it's anger. And you know, how do you? And and I'm this is secondhand information. This is just me feeling that wound as as a black man. But how do you process it when it's your actual community? Like, has there been, you know, issues with people, you know, lashing out in anger? Or is it, you know, just help me get a picture of how people dealt with that type of or deal with that type of disrespect? Yeah, I mean, anger is putting it mildly. People are pissed. Fuck off. I mean, and yeah. so, the you know, from when they come in to see me from a therapeutic standpoint, People are voicing, there's grief there. Yeah. And, you know, there's stages of grief. First, you know, shock. There's anger. There's depression. You know, there's bargaining. And then you hopefully you get to a place of acceptance. We ain't got to acceptance yet. So people are vacillate between, like I say, the shock and the anger. You know, and um, just talking about the loss of it and not being fully accepted or respected when they walk back into their community, being ignored, be, walking around invisible, you know, does something to you. It's just too much for people to take on with having to challenge folks when you go back in your community and they're looking at you as if you don't belong here. You know, we, we can fight. I do, I do talk to clients about they, they want to put hands on people. But then my goal is, like, that's not going to solve the problem because we don't want you to have those matching Chanel bracelets right. on you. you Wh know. What's the positive way to fight? So, once again, you know, 
having you know educating other people about what gentrification is how we can fight against it be prepared not to have this keep being to repeat this cycle again um speaking out you know um letting our officials know when we start voting on what changes need to happen where people are not getting pushed out of their community you know having some some guidelines around owners who are uh, owning property and then charging these massive amounts of rent, you know, just to get people out so they can throw some high price building up. How do we, you know, what do we need to do to speak out and, and, uh, and challenge that type of behavior? Do you encourage people to do kind of like what you did at Little Chapel of Chimes, which is to say, hey, wait a minute, here's the history. Yeah. And then just like, what now that you know something, how do you feel about what you just did kind of yeah challenging inter- interrupting racism racist comments yeah you know also but educating our people and, and all of language is so powerful because you know um folks everybody don't know microaggressions they just you know know that something happened and, and you know like this didn't feel good but i just can't put my finger on it so giving out information about microaggressions how do you interrupt um, oppressive and racist comments because at the same time we have to be safe physically we just in a place now Oregon has a history of not being kind to black and brown folk specifically african-american people so you got folks getting jumped on spit on I've had people slapped um, things thrown at them so from a therapist standpoint I also have to talk to people about your safety is number one when you approach people. Sometimes we have to survive encounters with some of these folks. And that doesn't make you weak. But right. how do you survive the encounter? Because your safety is number one. So you got to pay attention to what's happening in your body when you get ready to challenge someone. I just happen to feel comfortable and safe enough right. to do that. Sometimes we're, yeah. not, we're, yeah. not, we're not there yet. And with trauma, when you're operating from the... I always say the reptilian part of the brain is safety and your lid is flipped. So our prefrontal cortex, we're not able to do all use that executive functioning to slow down, really think things through. That puts us in dangerous situations. So I have to talk to our people about how, you know, when do you interrupt? Yeah. When do you challenge? That's good. And if you ain't safe, it's okay to walk away. You get another day. That's the, man, that's that's the best advice I've I've heard when it comes to that, because so many times it's just, you know, people will ring the alarm and say this is going on. But then it's silence as to, well, how do I deal with it? And that's good information right there, because you do you have to do that, because I've even found myself in situations where I was just literally just trembling with with anger. And I knew it was like, you know, I had to case the room for a second and it took that to just say, all right, let me realistically pride aside let me survive and fight this in another way so yeah that is that's perfect thank you for that now you you talk about other kind of effects of 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 racism but but also specifically root shock you talked about that you you a lot of clients you have are coming sometimes out of out of jail or prison prison uh, more specifically so they've been out of the game for a long time they've been out of the community for a long time and it's it's basically like the last OG, if, if you know that syndrome where they just come back in the neighborhood and you know last time they were there it was a it was a black majority community, 
And so what are some of the things that those folks experience, but that's just like, it's uh, just um, one day, you just wake up and it's all different. Well, one of the things, you know, it's what happened. You know, when you go to prison, yeah. things stop and information isn't always incoming. So here it is, words, gentrification. What is that? I ain't heard of that before, you know. So starting about this is what we're calling this, you know, where are the people at? What happened? How did how did it happen? You know, and it's really about explaining what things have changed and um, and, and really basic stuff like how do people get around this city you know to find the things that they need the support services they need to get stabilized because you know things are gone or people have moved further out or um, different programs have moved further out for people who need you know uh, food clothing shelter things of that nature so um, just really trying to at a very slowly um, bring them up to speed, but at a, at a pace that's comfortable for them. Because here we're going back to trauma is not flooding people with a lot of information and meeting, meeting clients where they're at, meeting a person where they're at. And sometimes a spoonful is just what people can take because that's powerful to come out after doing 10, 25 years or 40 years and you come back to your community and nothing's the same. And, and people that you grew up with gone. You know, and, and without the jail element, I've experienced that on a few different levels. Going back to Tulsa, it's completely changed because of the gentrification cycle it's in. Kansas City, I experienced the same thing for years. Every time I went back to Kansas City, it would be a different element. This, this changed. And then before I knew it, my neighborhood is, you know, I grew up in is now a white neighborhood. And, I, and, it, and it's a sense of emptiness of just like, can I ever go? You can never go back home. And it just stays in my memory. And now I wish I could have actually held some of those memories more precious. Like I wish there was something, you know, like some of those things I would have taken pictures of or appreciated. I just thought they would always be there. And now they're gone. And so for me, coming to a place like Portland where there is no black community, but then I go back home and my black community has been moved uh, or it may not even exist at all now. Um, it's difficult being in America right now at this point, just thinking, where are we? You know, where are we welcomed? Where can we be? Where's our community at? So I, I've, I experienced that. And I really I'm glad you put a language because I didn't I had no clue what root shock was. Today's one of the first times I've really heard anyone talk about it. Can you explain root shock a little bit more? You you'd also shared with us a story that didn't make it in the film, which was about you coming back to the neighborhood and looking for a building I think you were looking for SEI <laughs> yeah yeah so that was really overwhelming for me and it was the first time I realized that wow um, I really my community is really gone you know you drive and I think that's the same about trauma too a lot of avoidance you know because um, avoidance serves a purpose for a little while and I think I avoided a lot of the different feelings and emotions that came, that came up as a result of gentrification. But when it hit me, driving to SCI for a meeting, and um, I got lost. I actually was looking for the street to turn down, and I turned down street a street where it was ongoing traffic. 
and I go down a one way, the wrong yes, way. Yes, I was, you know, I I just was looking for there was a little uh, on the corner. I think it used to be in uh, somebody who had a farmer's insurance. A brother owned it at the time. I can't remember his name, but I was looking for it to say this is where I could turn down and. I turned down the street where it was ongoing traffic and people were honking at me. These people on bikes were screaming and I just got, I got so scared that I pulled over and I had to call my husband. I was just in tears. I was like, I don't know where I'm at. I can't find SCI. And I was so frustrated with myself because I'm like, I don't know how many times I drove to SCI growing up in this community. It's been over here. Why can't I find it? And, you know, um, I finally got turned around, but that was so overwhelming. Because all the landmarks All the changed. landmarks were gone. I, you know, um, and that's what we look for. Some, yeah. You know, when we describing, we telling brothers and sisters, well, you know, go over there and look for Johnny's and Lenny's. And then you go two blocks down, you're going to see this house on the corner. And, you know, and, and that's how we give information. Yeah. Um, because in our communities, we didn't, it didn't get developed quick enough. So we that's all we had most often so that we can find the places we needed to get to. So, you know, just having that, like I say, gone. The shock of nothing being the same, uprooted. And, and it causes anxiety and anxiety Anxiety. Attacks. Oh, yes, I definitely, I had a panic attack. You had a straight up panic attack. A panic yeah. attack. I was lost and scared like what am i gonna do and then been uncommon uh, you know uncommon traffic people were screaming i was like people could be so mean i mean i had a guy flip me off <laughs> if he only knew <laughs> what i was dealing with yeah. i was like it was yeah. not on purpose but you know but that goes to show privilege too you don't have to care yeah about how i feel I remember I don't belong in this neighborhood why are you here that's another thing that was coming you know that's how I was feeling at the time. I didn't belong. And so at the end of the day, you know, I was able to get turned around. But um, that's when it hit me. It's gone. And, and the, other people, you you hear other people who feel the same, who experience oh, it. Oh, yes. Yes. Getting lost or having to explain the physiological reactions. For a part of PTSD is describing the, P, the physiological reactions. When I start, and that's what made me make sense at the time. I was like, oh, this is what's happening. This is a trauma reaction. You know, and so when I was hearing clients say, when I'm on the bus, you know, and I'm driving and people staring at me and, you know, my heart start pounding, I start sweating, you know, man, you know, I don't know what's going on with me. And I was like, you know, this is a trauma reaction, you know, so helping my people separate seeing themselves as the problem and that this is a tra trauma reaction. This is a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. You are not abnormal because that's the first thing we go through is why I should be able to handle this better. No, you hurting. You're grieving. Your community is gone. But yet you have to come back over here every day and get treated as if you do not belong. And have had clients say, people have told them, why are you here? Who gets to ask somebody that? Like I said, but that's your privilege, though. You don't have to make it your business. As a white person, you don't have to make it your business to even consider what happened to this community. You come, you build your homes. Like Sister Nikki said, you throw up your pubs, you, you sell your $10 ice cream, and it's all good. 
But all along, you heard that black people ain't speaking to you. That's another thing where folks have, in, who do get to stay in the neighborhood have been accosted by neighbors who've moved in and challenged about your rude neighbor, you're not speaking, this and that. Or when they've asked, um, my aunt owns her home, people leave notes on her car, have knocked on her door, violated her personal space and rights, wanting to buy her home. Who does that? You know, and that's the stuff that's painful for people. You know, that you can come on our space, in our space, and do what you want. But the moment we step in your arena, we get penalized for it. Most often, it costs us our life. You know, yeah. so just talking with our folks about just what trauma is and how this is affecting our body. Let me ask you, it, it, typically we don't do this, but I want to ask you, Cornelius, how do you process hearing this from your perspective? Well, I mean, you know, these are the things that, you know, the things that I hear most often from folks that I interview here. Um, and what sticks with me is always, you know, I've never had anyone ask me, why are you here? You know, which I think is like kind of what drives the wedge between <laughs> my experience and, and your experience, you know, it really illustrates, you know, the shelteredness that that I have coming up here. And it's certainly been something that I've, and it's certainly been something that uh, I've been aware of at some points in my 20 years in the neighborhood, but there's been lots of points where I completely forget how easy my life is, you know? Or I'll just be wrapped up in my own little world and I'll forget, I'll just, completely like going back to the film 15 years later and just being reminded what my neighbors are going through what other people that I walk past in the street are going through and taking an extra effort to engage with folks and be as generous with my presence as I can be to everyone um, as just a you know a way I want I want to be rather than just heads down, um, pushing my way through through life, New Jersey boy. Um, but yeah, it, 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 it's always difficult here. Um, and it's always, you know, an indictment. Uh, and it makes you, you know, you, you have to be humble. And I noticed too, you know, after the filming, and which is something we haven't brought up, but it's often when, you know, just talking to and giving language for some of my community members around, you know, white fragility, you know, which we, we're we dealing with a lot of this, too, as well. So I noticed even after participating in some of the talks, how overwhelming it was for white people to approach me and, and want me to care for them and <laughs> take care of them and deal with their guilt and the crying and so I got that a lot, you know, and it's like, or even the clutching the pearls, like, I can't believe you said certain things, you know, nobody would, of course, in the audience come out, but they pull you to the side and be like, you know, I want to question you. They want to challenge me on some of the things that I would say. And I'd be like, I don't owe you an explanation. Right. You yeah. know, this is my narrative. You get to sit with the uncomfortableness around this. 
you know, I'm not, I can't, and I've had to, I remember I had to, to the last show and I had to tell when I went to, I can't take care of you. Yeah. You, you want me to take care of you. And I, I don't have the emotional bandwidth to give to you right now because I'm grieving my own loss. And through this process was my dealing with my own grief around the loss of my home, which I suppressed for a, for a very long time that I wasn't aware of until I started really dealing with this, you know, and it's a wonderful thing that I finally have gotten to a process where I can talk about it, but I didn't realize how impacted I was by this for many years, so. So, um, I think that, um, that you've had in the past some really good things to say about how white people should, or what white people should think about when they move into neighborhoods like this, whether it's this neighborhood or another neighborhood that's shifting um, from a minority population to a majority population or from a poor working class population to a wealthier middle class population. You've had some like, some great words of wisdom of like, what should these folks know from your perspective? If, if you know, say they move with all the best intentions, it's like, I'm gonna live here forever, I'm gonna be engaged in community, this is the, the, the house I could afford. Um, I'm, I'm here to stay, even even those folks. I mean, what would I tell them? Um, expect people not to be friendly right away. You know, sit with the uncomfortableness around it. Um, because we've had to sit with the uncomfortableness. Know the history of this place. I can't say it enough. It is so disrespectful to move into a community but yet do no work to learn about what happened before you got here you know and no and stay in your lane with certain things and I, what I mean by that is you know that 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 indictment you know like the questioning be careful with what you say to people be mindful be present with people in your interaction with them because you know, um, that's something I think is gonna take a long, it's gonna take a little bit time for people to be trusting. Um, for those black folks who are coming back to the community, I, it's gonna take a long time to trust. And that um, a trust has been violated, and I wanna share that once a trust has been violated, you don't get to determine when you get it back. And that's what's hard, and that's the most precious thing about trust, is that, you know, you can be a white person and have this really loving heart and mean to do good doesn't mean you're going to gain the trust back of that community member that's now coming back. So just know that. Don't take don't don't take it personal. If you make an agreement with it and you take it personal, it's going to be a problem. Know that people are grieving and they're going to need time. They're going to it, it just and and just because you you're angry doesn't mean make you a dangerous person. Right. It just makes you a human individual who is in pain. <laughs> is there anything else you think we should we should know or talk about? No, not really. I, I, you know, I appreciate the time for being here, and I once again I appreciate the opportunity to be a part of the film. I really do. It really was part of my healing process. Like I said before, I didn't realize how much I had uh, suppressed the years that I had kind of like covered that up and this allowed me time to kind of unpack that in in my own therapy I've been able to unpack it so if you are an individual who needs to 
you know, speak to someone about this, you know, and about other uh, issues that affect you from a mental health standpoint, and you are looking for a black practitioner work with, OHSU, Ava Gorley has some wonderful practitioners. We take all insurance, including Oregon Health Plan. And if you do not have insurance, come on down. We'll see you. You, you know, you can qualify for the mental health slide and fee scale. And there's no shame with you coming in to get help. There's a space for you, and we want to help you heal. And you're entitled to that. Welcome back in, and that was pretty good, man. That's powerful stuff. Yeah, so I'm really glad we we, we did this episode. What do we got coming up next? So next uh, next time we have Brew Booty, who is a investment broker for basically multifamily properties, and so he is going to tell us about gentrification from the perspective of the institutional and mid-range investor. He's going to go down the numbers. He's going to tell us about how the housing crisis happened behind the numbers. Okay. Um, but he's going to explain to us, and I think it's important that folks know how the game is played um, so they know what's going on. All right. Looking forward to that. Make sure you check us out on uh, iTunes, Spotify. No, no. Stitcher? Stitcher. There we go. I don't know why I was about to say Spreaker. Stitcher one. I do, and I was trying to remember this time. Um, anywhere you can find a podcast, you can definitely find Priced Out the Podcast. Also, uh, all social media, Twitter. You're always tweeting something pretty good every day. You got something on Twitter, Facebook, as well as every now and then, you know, we might uh, do something on Instagram. So if you're wherever you are, Priced Out is right there. So make sure you check out our website also, which we never really talk about. And you've been doing some really good work on the, the blog and some other things. So what's Price, the uh, just PricedOutMovie.com. You can find us and you can get to everywhere from there. All right. We'll see you guys next time.